0: Mike Walsh, and you're listening to Between Worlds. So what I'm really wondering, of course, is how does a Viking end up living in London? (laughs) (laughs) I came here
1: to conquer London.
0: That's uh, what the last lot said.
1: (laughs) um no i mean I, I i moved here eight years ago because um, um i written a book called the uh, called the Goldmine effect at that time the the book was only in danish and i felt uh, it was trying to test the ideas with a wider more global audience so i went here and uh, so you decided to,
0: to come to the one place where people spoke english yeah yeah yeah
1: <laughs> i mean Speaking Danish, writing in Danish has some uh, natural limitations because uh, you, you you only reach 5.5 million people. Are there some potential. Are there some mm-hmm. thoughts that
0: can only be thought in Danish that are hard to translate into English?
1: Like like words or yeah, or uh,
0: concepts. I mean, like you know, there are. I find every language there are certain things. That, yeah. like the French say that there's certain concepts that just don't translate.
1: Yeah, I mean there is um there is a there's a there's a thing in Denmark called hygge, which is basically a word for having a good time but it's not exactly like having a good time it's like something something special Danish people do when they're together is more of one atmosphere does it involve a feeling that fighting it and passing
0: out drunk on, no, like, on no, the halls no, no, of Valhalla no. it's actually
1: very non-aggressive <laughs> Hugu. Hugu is very non-aggressive it's uh, more cozy
0: I think yeah <laughs> uh, so you so you came to London
1: yeah so I came there and um, wanted to get the book out so I had to find myself first a literary agent, I did that after a while, then she had to find me a publisher, and uh, she had, I think she she, she explained the concept to lots of publishers, most of them said, "Mm, don't think so, and then in the end, she she found a publisher, and uh, it was published globally, and then did pretty well, so so it was a good good start to to coming here, a good platform to build on.
0: For those of you who haven't read, and hopefully that's not too many of you, The Goldmine Effect, I'm sitting having a cup of tea in Soho House in London with uh, Rasmus Hankerson, uh, who's an entrepreneur. Uh, he's the author of a number of books, uh, also Hunger in Paradise. Uh, that's right, isn't it? That's right, yeah. It's, it's, this is not the, the prequel to The Hunger Games, is it?
1: No, no, it's something <laughs> something more corporate than that. We'll, we'll, <laughs> we'll get to that
0: a little bit. He's also he calls himself a, a high-performance anthropologist, uh, well, let's talk about that first because uh, that intrigued me. I mean, it, it, yeah. you sort of did the ultimate Gonzo journalism with this with this first book because you you didn't just read about what Ethiopian extreme athletes were doing in Ethiopia on Wikipedia. You yeah. actually went to Ethiopia and a number of other places.
1: Yeah, yeah. I wanted to do mm. something different, and I wanted to experience uh, this like firsthand, not just doing desk research but 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 really the, the idea started a few years earlier than that because back in my my, my early days uh, I, was a, I was a football coach and i helped build uh, one of the first football academies in, in Scandinavia at the time uh, and i had one experience there that really made me question things and we were recruiting for the academy and because we were kind of a new the new kid on the block we, we couldn't recruit the best players, so we had to basically Uh, pick who was left when everyone else had made their picks and we picked this guy the first year I remember called Simon he was 15 years old and uh, we we only took him because uh, we couldn't get anyone better and because his father worked as a kid man uh, (laughs) at the Academy and he did a brilliant job so we we wanted to stretch to keep him Uh, and um, so long story short when he's 18 so three years later We sell him for four million pounds to an Italian club. He's named as the player of the year in the country, as the youngest ever, and today he's the captain of the national team and one of the best defenders in Europe. So his name is Simon Kerr. Most of your listeners probably don't know him, but it doesn't matter because the kind of interesting thing about the story is that when he was 15, all the coaches in the academy, uh, including myself, we did an exercise. So each of us wrote down on a piece of paper the names of the five players in the academy that we thought would be the best five years in the future we collected all the pieces of paper and we put them into an envelope and then five years later we reopened the envelope and surprisingly you know not a single one had simon among their five i mean the guy that was number one on my list he doesn't even play football so that he runs a pizza place <laughs> you know in the southern denmark so it made me it made me think a lot about what is talent You know, how do you identify talent? How do you develop talent? Questions, I think, are relevant for any organization. So then I became familiar with these clusters of talent. First, I heard about the Kenyan runners that, you know, dominated middle and long distance running for many, many years. And they do not only come from Kenya, but they come from this little place in Kenya called Eten.
0: Yeah, which Um, um, we were talking about David Epstein before. Yeah, exactly. Uh, He he went over there and took a look at them.
1: And uh, sim- similarly with, with Jamaican sprinters, you know, they, a lot of them come from the same athletic club in the outskirts of Kingston. Thirty five percent of the world's one hundred best female golfers are from South Korea. Um, like up north Sweden, there's a small village in the mountains called Tana, with five hundred people. They produce some of the best alpine skiers in history. So, so I said, well, I gotta I gotta go and see what what, what what's the secret here and try and and do it from an uh, anthropology point of view like going there embracing myself in those environments training with them living with them uh, at the same time trying to find the research that has been done by other people about in, into this topic so I did that and then ended up writing the gold mine effect
0: yeah. well, what did you discover I mean was it nature versus nurture I mean were, were these genetic clusters or does just being around other great people tend to lift you no I mean
1: there's always this nature nurture conversation which is becomes a bit simplistic at times and it's obviously both I mean genetics matters you know uh, training environment matters as well Um, I think culture plays a massive role so if you take Jamaica as an example um, you know if you have the potential to become a good sprinter you become a good sprinter in right. Jamaica because there is an, a culture and an environment that drags you into sprinting. You know, from you're in kindergarten, you have role models, you know, you have big events, you become part of this world. So the best athletes end up becoming sprinters. They have a really high capitalization rate. Almost everyone who can become a good sprinter does become a good sprinter. Right. I used to say if you, St. Paul, were born in the US, probably he wouldn't have been a sprinter. He'd been a wide receiver in American football or maybe a basketball player. You know, a lot of people ask me, why do we not have a top sprinter, Usain Bolt, in the UK? Well, there is. He's just not sprinting, he's playing football. You know, the best sprinter in uh, in the UK uh, over the past five years, a guy called Adam Gimeli. He was a reject at the Chelsea Football Academy, you know. So, culture plays a massive role and Sometimes we look at these places and say that there must be something in the water, but actually uh, that, that cultural, environmental aspect can, is, is very powerful because of the success that these places have created. And this,
0: can, this can be a negative influence, uh, particularly you see this in companies, because they'll acquire some hot new startup with amazing, talented people, and then these people just sort of wilter in this new environment because there isn't a culture for, of success.
1: Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> I remember when I came to when I came to Itan and I arrived there, this is like three, almost three kilometers above sea level, and I, I came to my, the place where I was staying, and I, I went for a jog the next morning, just 30 <laughs> minutes, and in 30 minutes, I saw three world champions, you know, and it made, made me kind of think like, if you run 10 strides behind the guy who won the world championship, you know, there's a good chance, you think, I can probably do that one day myself.
0: But well, I like how you put it. Like the, the morning warm-up sessions. You know, if you win the morning warm-up session, you're basically the fastest person in the world. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, exactly. It's. Uh, it's
1: and you, you. And and the thing is, if you try and conceptualize that, what 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 it what it does is that it makes you see what world class look like every day. It normalizes world class. Yeah. You see what they do. You see what they've achieved. You see their behavior. On a day-to-day basis, and this is why I know I think the proximity of role models is an absolute key factor if you want to build a successful talent environment.
0: And we, 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 I guess, we're familiar with this idea in terms of goals because you know once someone breaks a record, which may have been in place for like twenty years, then pretty much the record gets broken on a daily basis. It sort of no longer becomes a big (laughs) idea. But what you're saying, which is really fascinating, is not just. The headline goal it's all of the daily practices and mindsets and just the, the kind of the, the culture of being a, a winner kind yeah. of tends to be embedded when you're surrounded by yeah
1: you as I said it, it, it normalizes excellence yeah. it's like that's just who we are that's just what we do and you don't realize that what you do is actually because you grow up there so that behavior is world-class behavior, but it's normal to you because that's all you've seen.
0: But there can be a so. dark side to this normalization as well, which, mm-hmm. which is, in a way, what your second book was about. Yeah. Which is, is that you know, once you've achieved success, yeah. you can actually be blinded uh, by the desire to keep pushing fur- further.
1: Yeah. No. I, this this was kind of the concept of hunger and paradise. Um, we I, and and I, I first started thinking about that when I was in um, I was in Helsinki to to give a presentation at a conference, and. Uh, there was a dinner afterwards and I sat next to these three guys who worked at Nokia and they all had iPhones in their pockets So, Nokia still existed back Yeah, then. <laughs> yeah Nokia still existed back then. So, you know, maybe, you know, that must be an, I was thinking that must be an unforgivable sin Like, yeah, and, and, and then I started looking into that Nokia story and, you know, it was really interesting how, how, they, how they end up going from 50% global markets here to 3% in less than five years and so, so I thought, well, we, we talk a lot about like, this is what we're gonna do to achieve success. But actually, do we talk enough about some of the challenges from, from a psychological perspective that, that follows success? So arrogance, complacency, resistance to change. Um, and in many respects, I think it's, it, it's psychologically more difficult to stay successful because you, it's, it, that needs to become successful. Because in, in times of success, People thinking why well, fix something? It's not broken. You know, driving change from a position of strength is more difficult than driving change from a position of weakness. Right. And 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 that's I think the psychological it's essence more of a burn, so why, as I say, there's
0: a yeah. burning platform when yeah. you, you know Pe- everything. Is- people
1: get it. People understand it. People, we got it. We got to change now. But the thing is, in a in a big if you talk about big companies, there's always a big time delay between cause and effect. So if a company is successful today, it's not because what it did yesterday, it's maybe what it did five years ago. If it's a failure in five years time, it's what it does today and not in five years time. And because of that time delay, it means that to stay ahead of the game, you need to drive change when it looks like there's no need to change. And, and and, and you know, that's, a lot of successful companies hesitate to do that because it's, instinctively you think it's going well why fix something it's not broke I mean there's a there's a great there's a great metaphor for this um, it's called the boiling frog problem oh yes. yeah yeah so so if you put a frog into a boiling hot water it will immediately jump out to save its life but if you put a frog into cold water you heat the water gradually The frog won't perceive the danger it will be cooked to death
0: i've seen the same effect with english people on the beach (laughs) yeah 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 yeah. i'll agree with you on that Uh,
1: so so this idea that that successful companies don't notice like the frog gradual changes in the environment what what are examples of
0: companies that are successfully able to reframe people's thinking then
1: i think i think one of the companies I looked quite a bit into was was Lego. Um, I had a close relationship to the company, and I knew uh, I've been um, I've known the CEO for, for 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 quite a few years. So I, I I I was really impressed by the way they were just creating like I would say a positive um, dissatisfaction with the status quo, like. Yeah. So, Do
0: they have a set of values, or is it more of just a, I a culture? I it's think a,
1: it's a culture of challenging right. in times of success. So I remember he told me the story, uh, the CEO about Lego having delivered like the best result ever, uh, uh, double as profitable as the three worst competitors in the toy industry combined. Then he then he meets his team and he says, "Well done, guys. You've done a great job, but I have a question for you." And the question is. Are you actually sure that we're competing in the toy industry? Because if, a, if an 11-year-old boy go down to the shop and he does not buy a Lego product, what would he buy instead? Would he buy a product from Mega Bloks, which is one of the good old players in the toy industry? Or would he buy a um, football jersey or, or maybe an iPhone? Right. So if he bought an iPhone, it actually changes the conversation because now the battlefield is not the children's playroom, Now, uh, sorry, the, the toy industry, now the, the battlefield is is the children's playroom and the main competitor is not mega box is apple well,
0: it's actually a battle for time oh, Was that and it's a battle for time and attention
1: really. yeah 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 so so when you change that perspective it means that you're competing against apple and then you can try and compare yourself with apple's growth rates and then even lego will start to kind of look like a beginner again yeah so he i think it's an it's an interesting way you you you, you he reframes the competitive landscape by asking which industry are we actually in? To create the feeling that, yeah, yes, we reached the top of this mountain, but guys, that was a small hill because the real mountains of climbed are up I've here. Seen, yeah. I've seen other leaders do the same yeah. thing.
0: You know, when I think a former CEO of Coke said, our real competitor is not Pepsi, it's water.
1: Yeah. Or, yeah. or when the All CEO, liquids that can go into the human yeah, body. That's, that, the, that's a yeah. terrifying concept. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
0: Yeah. They, they, you'd actually would consider that. But I think also uh, Reed Hastings from Netflix said, our real competitor here is not cable, it's sleep.
1: Uh, yeah yeah no it's a great it's a great way of putting it because yeah. it's it makes yourself smaller and it makes the world bigger
0: yeah
1: and 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 it makes you because it's, it's it's in many ways it's about perception right that's where it starts so are you the fat cat that has reached the top of the mountain or are you an entrepreneur that's gotta go out there and conquer the world and that depends on how you are from a leadership a perspective shapes the perception about your potential so
0: so you've had the opportunity to weaponize some of these insights in recent times uh, because you've managed to bring all your interests together with uh, data football and gambling yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so so let's talk a little bit about that yeah. how did how did you end up running two football clubs <laughs> yeah so that's why
1: I spend most of my time uh, doing today but I mean I, I I met a guy in London when I moved actually first year I moved here um, He's read my book. His name was Matt Benham, and he was a gambler. Uh, he owned a football club, the, the club he supported since he was a teenager, Brentford, which is like West London club, uh, in the second sec, at that time in the second tier of English football, no, our third tier of English football at that time, so League One. And I remember when I, when I met him, um, there was only five games remaining of the season at the time and Brentford was pushing for promotion, so I said to him, I, what's up? Do you think you're going to promote? And, uh, and he, 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 didn't, he, he didn't give me the answer I expected. Like he, there was not an answer full of excitement. He just said, well, at the moment there's a 42.3% chance we'll promote. <laughs> and, and that made me think a lot because I, I, I realized I met someone who thought completely different about their game than anyone I ever met before. And I, saw, I know this sounds a bit controversial, but I think he kind of convinced me that the brightest guys in football don't necessarily work for the football clubs. But they work in the gambling industry, and, right. not, and and not like the amateur gambler, but these guys like himself, who are using sophisticated mathematical models to calculate probabilities for the outcome of football games. So he met here, um, oh, uh, runs a betting syndicate in North London, basically an office full of hundred statisticians, you know, calculations, yeah, 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 yeah. So, so we, I did some consulting for him, and then. One day we had, we were, very, we were very, very, both of us were very fascinated by this concept about how can you not outspend but outthink the competition, like by, by using the weapons of a gambler, which is analytics and data. So actually in the old Soho, in the in, the, in the other Soho house, not the one we are in now, but the other one, we had lunch together and um, I remember he, he said to me at that time, you know, he's been thinking think about owning another football club because he wants another place to test his ideas. And then I said, why don't you take a look at the club I supported when I was a teenager, which was a club called FC Midtjylland <laughs> in the western Denmark. So we went there and they had a look. Midtjylland was almost bankrupt at the time, so it was a good, there was a good deal to be made and long story short so he bought the club and he made me the chairman of the club and then we ran the club together both clubs for the, together for the past four years So. and has it worked? yeah no, I mean we, we Midland became kind of this money ball story of football because we the first season we took over we won the championship for the first time in the club's history and the, the season after we beat Southampton and then Manchester United in Europa League
0: wow unfortunately
1: in the, in the UK it's kind of that that Manchester United uh, win is more perceived as the ultimate embarrassment of Manchester United than right. the genius of Midland but fair enough i mean
0: but what did but, you do like what did you do to really make such a dramatic change in the performance of the players i,
1: I think i think we i think we we did, we did various things i think we we implemented a lot of new procedures in recruitment um You know, how can we use data to identify undervalued players in the market? Um, Another thing we did was to introduce a more rational, objective way of looking at performance and measuring the progress of performances. So the thing that people in football rarely understands is that there is a huge amount of randomness in the sport. And there's much more randomness in football than in basketball because football is a low-scoring sport. It's not. It's the average number of goals in a football game is 2.8 and basketball is more than 100. Right. So
0: a, lo- a lot of things can happen between the goals, basically. Yeah, so
1: basically, random events like the ball getting deflected or the referee making a mistake have a much more impact on the final score in a low-scoring sport like football and a high-scoring sport like basketball. So people in football, they say, all, oh, and it's a, it's a very frequently used expression that the league table never lies. So kind of assumes that at the end of the season justice prevails, the team at the top of the table is the best team, the teams that relegate are the worst performing teams. But where a gambler says, the league table always lies because of the randomness. And a full season in football is 38 games, and that is not at all enough of a sample size to strip out the randomness from the equation.
0: So you you went and looked for more more resolution, basically, to to see who the real great players were that were not being reflected by the scores yeah
1: and what teams were, were, for, were which, which teams were overachieving which teams were underachieving because a gambler when a gambler places a bet he doesn't look at where is that team in the league table he looks at underlying performance indicators that have more predictive value for where the team is likely to go in the future than its current league position because of the random nature of the game the same thing you do when you run a football club you know so, we said from day one, we don't use the league table as the primary measure of, of uh, monitoring our progress. We use our own league table, which is the, the, gambler, the gambler's league table, basically, I, call, I used to call it table of justice. You know, well, well, how are we actually doing and where are we likely to go? Because sometimes you get 15 points more than you deserve, your underlying performance justifies. And that's where people say, "Hey, we're so good," and that's why you've got to be skeptical and say, "Hey, guys, yes, well done, but listen, it's not sustainable. You know, we yeah. have to improve." Then you get fifteen, sometimes fifteen points less than you deserves or the performance justifies. And I tried both, uh, and, and that's why you gotta. You know, everyone wants you to sack the coach. You know, what a disaster! The media are all over you. And that's why you guys got to, gotta to stick to the plan and say listen we think we have some signal in all the noise and this is the signal we gotta to stick to the plan so
0: what are some examples of data points that you were able to harvest that you think people weren't paying attention to
1: i think it's it's we 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 look at or a game ball looks at all the all the all, what, what what every football club of every football team have in common you want to score goals and you want the uh, to prevent the opponent from scoring goals. So, um, so, so I mean, some some teams might decide to play beautiful possession. Some teams might base their game on long throw-ins, But both, no matter what style you have, you want to score as many goals as possible and prevent the opponent from conceding conceding goals. So we look at we look at that uh, when we measure performance. So how many high probability positions do we get into during a game to score a goal and you know how many do we prevent our opponent to get into right so that is you look at the setup basically. yeah we look at we look at the, the what, what because because it's a low scoring game this and you know you, the best team wins less often in football yeah, than yeah. most other sports so you want something you measure consistently that you know over time have a correlation or causality with, so, um, with results. So
0: you're, what you're actually looking at here is uh, the teams and the players that generated or stopped as many opportunities as, as possible. The actual outcome is not as important no. as... No, so, so
1: for example, we, when we, if we were going to recruit a striker, so I would, I, would, I would ask you a question here. So you have two strikers. One has, gets you know, in the same amount of games, same amount of time, gets to seven opportunities. And scores zero goals and the other striker gets to free opportunities and he scores three goals who would you pick
0: <laughs> i kind of feel by the way you've asked this <laughs> yeah, question that yeah, i yeah. i should pick the first rather than yeah. the second and, and although and, if and we hadn't had this conversation no, i would have no. said yeah you know so it's
1: very counterintuitive it's very counter-intuitive. Uh, so because we work with we don't look at the actual number of goals we, we have a term we call expected goals so based on based on the number of Position, good positions the player gets into. What is the expected number of goals from from that? And that we know is a it's a more predictive measure about how many goals is he likely to what's score. The, in the What's future. the
0: defensive metric?
1: It's more difficult with defensive because yeah. pre, def, by nature, defensive players prevents things from happening. You know, it's in, in, and how do you measure something that didn't happen? You know, <laughs> it's like in, I think in basketball they they have a term for these top defensive players that don't come out on the stats they call them the no stat all stars because the guy that closed down the space so the situation never happened doesn't get credit through stats whereas the guy that tackles all the time because he's late he doesn't anticipate what's going to happen he gets a lot of credit on the stats want to tackle here so offensive contributions are much more uh, are much easier to measure than defensive contribution at this stage.
0: Do you think this logic of, uh, I guess, measuring potential performance can be applied to the corporate world as well? I mean, yeah. in sales, if you're looking for a top sales performer, yeah. would you really hire someone who made the most calls versus getting the most deals?
1: Yeah, I think it's the, 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 the relevance for business here is that basically it comes back to the conversation about lagging and leading indicators, performance indicators, Right? you can, lagging indicators tells you something about how you've done up until this point, leading indicators tells you something about where you're going. So a lagging indicator for a sales guy would probably be sales. Yeah. And a leading indicator would be pipeline or number of calls or, you know, and so a gambler pays a lot more attention to leading indicators than lagging indicators when making bets and predictions. And I think in companies, companies generally speaking, especially when they're successful, should do a better job measuring leading indicators. Because lagging indicators can easily paint a picture of a company in great shape, where at the same time leading indicators paint a picture of a company that actually steering towards the end of a cliff. So I, I, I have this example in, in one of my books with SAP, the German software company, that we're actually having really good um, customer loyalty. Uh, they had, uh, you know, good market share. So that was the lagging indicators. But the leading indicators actually told a different story. So, for example, they realized that they had really low implementation rates of the software they sold. So, so on some products, they fifty percent of the, uh, the the software they sold were never implemented by the client. Yeah. So you don't make it you don't have a, make any difference you know you just sold unused software license to this job that's going to gonna catch customers. up to you that's going to catch up at some point yeah. so so you know you need because of this time delay you gotta identify what are my what are the leading indicators i gotta look at and be skeptical about that
0: i think, I think uh, you know the other the other story around talent here that's applicable is I think the value of the gambler's mind because yeah. if you're in, in an environment that's increasingly algorithmic and driven by data you actually want people that almost think like a gambler approaching problems yeah. making decisions and 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 i guess really evaluating where value lies
1: yeah no it's, it's basically what, what is uh, what what where, where is the you know the, the the objective way of looking at things but also the skeptical way of looking at things. So, and
0: looking for underlying causes, right? Yeah, yeah.
1: So I, 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 I always say like, in, in, time, in times of success, or let's say, let's put, let me put it this way, in times of failure in a company, it's very natural for people to ask tough questions like, why did we fail? How can we do things better? But in times of success, we don't ask those questions. We just cruise on. We expect things to continue. And that's where you got to look at what a gambler does, because a gambler, a professional gambler treats success with the same skepticism as he treats failure. You know, and that's what I think organizations should do, too. Like, they, you, should, you should basically, you know, how, okay. how do you separate skill from luck? You know, were we, were, we, were we successful because we were lucky? Or was it because of market conditions? Or what was the, what was the reason? And, and, and is it, you know, the league table also sometimes lies in business, you know? And so the skeptical mind of a gambler is something I, I, I learned that you know the intellectual humility of looking at success with a skeptical mind. You know? And this
0: is also quite counterintuitive because mm-hmm. we often associate gamblers with superstition and yeah. obsessiveness. Uh, you don't yeah. really mm-hmm. associate them with an objective, data-driven, counterintuitive approach.
1: No, <laughs> but these guys are traders. They're professional gamblers in football. They're basically traders. Yeah. You know, uh, Matt, Matt Benham, who owns the two clubs I'm involved with. You know, he, he was he used to be a trader at the Deutsche Bank. And uh, but but really good at math, but also a massive football fan. And then when <laughs> uh, when, when football gambling started to uh, you know s- surface in the in the eight, in, in the late you know, early 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 90s, then you know he he jumped on that bus and done really well for himself. So uh, yeah, the, ga- the 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 gambler I've been very impressed by the way gamblers think and and because it's not about the data it's, it's, it's about you know how you how you interpret the data what, what, what you do with it and how you use but also how you understand the limitations of data and the strengths of data because a good gambler also realizes that they don't make bets based you know solely on what the model tells you there has to be you know there has to be a subjective thing as well and using 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 those two to to the objective and the subjective and balance in the right way i think is is key
0: rasmus it was wonderful to meet you it was a lot of fun to hang out and now that we're neighbors uh hopefully we can do this a bit more often
1: lovely to meet you thanks for having me
0: you've been listening to between worlds for more episodes and information on how to subscribe to our podcast. Please visit www.mike-walsh.com/slash-between-worlds.